0: It's, um, it's my privilege today, as your pastor, to administer the Lord's Supper. This is my first time administering it as a pastor. I've served it as, a, as an elder, but never administered it as a pastor. And just thinking afresh of the gift of the reminders that God gives us of the gospel. And what a treat it is. And a grace and a blessing it is to come together with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to celebrate this at the Lord's table this morning. So as, as I was praying about this and thinking, what, what could help prepare us uh, to take the Lord's Supper? Uh, what better passage than perhaps the, uh, the most informative, most powerful passage in all the Bible on the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Three points I want to focus from this text. Now let me show you why I've got three points from this text. It's not just a pedagogical thing. It's not just how preachers preach. But I I think the passage really unfolds into three parts. So look with me at the text. Verses 17 through 22, Paul states the problem in the Corinthian church regarding the Lord's Supper. Okay, And what he does here is he lays out the problem and he rebukes them for the ways in which they've been regarding the Lord's Supper. But it isn't just simply point out the problems and rebuke them, he grounds his rebuke in the gospel and the nature of the Lord's Supper as its gospel significance is meant to be celebrated. You'll see that in verses 23 uh, through 28. And then the remainder of the passage, Paul then gives corrections. He gives a corrective in light of the rebuke. It's not just simply rebuking and then moving on. But there's, there's mercy, there's grace, still for the Corinthians, just like there is for us. And so he gives rebuke, he states the problem, he gives the grounds, the basis for the rebuke, but then he also states the corrective in the remainder of the chapter. So let's take each of these sections, and let's just walk through the passage, let's get the, let's get the background, the setting, let's understand what the problem was, and let's understand how Paul is instructing us, as, as a As a church, no doubt, uh, but even individually in this room, on what it is that goes on when we come to the bread and the wine and what it means to celebrate and remember afresh Jesus Christ slain for sinners like us so let's let 's begin at the beginning of the passage here in verse seventeen what's the problem going on in the Corinthian church? Well, if you're at all familiar with the book of Corinthians, you know it's one of many, right? Just like my life, there's a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. Just like us as a church, just like any sinner, we've got problems, don't we? We've got relational problems, we've got theological problems, we've got upteen different problems. And this is one of the problems. And the main problem Paul identifies here in verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Begins it with a rebuke. Because when you come together, it's not for better, but for the worse. And if you look at verse 18, you begin to see what's going on. There are divisions in the church. Now, divisiveness was an ongoing problem for the Corinthians. If you just survey the book of Corinthians, right off the bat, chapters 1 through 4, Paul addresses the divisions over party factions. One person's of Paul, the other person's of Apollos, the others of Jesus. I like that group. But Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. And they were dividing over these party factions. There were, there were divisions over unresolved conflicts. Weren't there? First Corinthians 6, they were suing one another because they, they couldn't come together in agreement. They couldn't resolve their conflicts in a gospel centered way. They were dividing over that. Verses 8 through 10, there were divisions between those who were spiritually mature and spiritually immature. People were using their spiritual maturity to do harm to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they were dividing in that way. Spiritual gifts, another point of division, 12 through 14, you can read about that. And here in verse uh, 17 through 34, I think Paul reserves some of his, his strongest rebuke for their divisions over the Lord's Supper. So if you look at verse 17, you see the first... Straightforward rebuke. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I don't praise you for this. I'm aware of what you're doing and I'm not affirming you in it. And he says it again in verse 22. But do you, dis-, listen, listen what he says. Do you despise the church of God? That's, that's very strong, isn't it? Do you humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I, shall I commend you in this? Certainly not, Paul says. So we see as we see as rebuke the strong rebuke. You can imagine if we were the church getting this letter, and the pastor stands up and we've got one from the apostle here, and then rebuke over your practices. So what was the problem? What was what warranted Paul saying this? What was going on in the Corinthian church? Well, just something of the setting. Verses eighteen through twenty. Look at the text with me. Verse eighteen. Paul hears word of. The problems in the church. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. That's a a big understatement of the Apostle Paul right there. He's well aware of the divisions. It's even coming to him from third party. Verse 19, Paul acknowledges that even divisions in the church are not outside God's superintendent. He he is in control even of factions in the church. Look at verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. God even uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And I think Paul points that out here. There's a little glimmer of hope even at the outset of this passage. That this is not taking God by surprise. That God can even use these things. Nevertheless, verse 20, He still rebukes the Corinthians for their sin... They should be pursuing unity. But instead, even in the Lord's Supper, they're continually cultivating disunity. The one place we would especially expect to see a display of unity between brothers and sisters was one of the biggest evidences of their disunity. And what what were they doing? Well, they were splitting into really two groups within the church. We see this in verses twenty-one to twenty-two. Two groups in the church during the Lord's Supper had just become glaringly apparent. You might you might call these the haves and the have nots. Look at look at verses twenty-one to twenty-two. Here's what they were doing. For in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So one hungry The other drunk. Verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing. So you've got the haves. this This is probably referring to, in the church, the wealthy, upper class members. They eat first. They eat together as a group. They fill themselves Jesus even says they're getting drunk. They're fellowshipping together. And then the other group you have that comes in later are the have-nots. This is the, the poor, the lower class members of the church. They eat last, if at all. They're excluded from the fellowship that the upper class were having together. And what was going on here is just social snobbery and, and injustice. Just call it what it is. In the first century Greco-Roman world, the weeks didn't include the weekend off. You know, we don't have it as good as Europe has, with all the uh, extra days off they get. But you know, the Roman world didn't have it as good as we have it now. They certainly didn't have the seven-day week like we experience. They didn't have the Jewish Sabbath. They didn't observe those days. This is probably a predominantly Gentile church, so you can imagine Christians trying to meet on the first day of the week and. And they've still got commerce and work going on in their days of meeting. So what's happening here? They either had to meet early in the morning on the first day of the week or or sometime late in the evening. And what ended up happening was the rich had much greater flexibility in the schedules. And they got to the corporate meetings earlier and had more time for eating and drinking and fellowshipping. And they didn't wait for their poor brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the slaves... Who were part of the church, tradesmen, and so on. Much less flexibility in the schedule. They couldn't get to the meetings until later. And consequently, the, the social snobbery, this was just commonplace in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, it's commonplace in our world too, isn't it? But what was happening is that the, the social snobbery and injustices of the pagan world had crept into the church. The one place where the Shouldn't have been any social snobbery, no injustices, where there was neither slave nor free, neither Greek nor Jew, and so on, Paul says. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus, instead, what happened? Verse 21, you've got the access of the rich, just observing the, the supper and the fellowship to excess, They didn't wait on their poor brothers and sisters. They're overeating. They're they're being gluttonous at the the table. They're over-drinking. They're actually getting drunk. And they're doing it at the expense of the poor, who had little to no portion in the supper, no fellowship with the body. So just imagine the setting. Imagine the setting. Imagine you're one of the poor brothers or sisters who comes in later, and what you see is, is is a whole group, kind of kick back, carousing, having having a good time, fellowshipping together, bellies tight, warm from their drink. It just just fellowshipping together, and you can you can just almost see the look. of uh, It's it's almost like it's a bother to them to have the poor brothers and sisters come in, and they don't want to go into that. I'm sure they probably had their separate section. And then right in the midst of this meal, meant to show our oneness in Christ. Division. The Lord's Supper, Paul says in verse 20. Look at verse 20. This is very strong. The Lord's Supper is no longer the Lord's Supper. When you come together, and you'll probably find that that phrase comes up multiple times in your translation. He's referring to the same event, coming together for the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Imagine being told that as a church. that has gotten to that point. So that's the problem in Corinth with the Lord's Supper. But, but notice, Paul doesn't simply give a rebuke. Right? He states what's going on. He rebukes them for it, but then notice the word for in verse 23. Look at verse 23. For, Paul says, and everything that follows here, these are the grounds, the bases, the reasons for why his rebuke, the strong rebuke, is entirely appropriate. Appropriate for the Corinthians and appropriate for us whenever we commit the same sins. So the grounds, the reasons for Paul's rebuke. I think he gives three here. And the first is that the Lord's Supper is a time of remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that in what we call the words of institution, verses 23 through 25. And what Paul is doing here is he's quoting directly from Jesus. And you can read of it in the gospels. You probably have a little footnote in your Bible somewhere that will tell you where to go in uh, in the gospels to read these words of Jesus. So he quotes from the source. And in so doing, what is he saying? He's saying that the supper was Christ's idea. right? It was given by him, by his design, by his authority. This isn't Paul's invention. This isn't an optional thing for the church. Jesus, Jesus gave this to us. And what does Jesus emphasize whenever he gives the words of institution? Well, his emphasis is on the verses... Uh, in these verses, is on the fact that the meal is meant to remind believers of His gospel. He mentions it twice. Verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you see that? And if you want to really stress something, you repeat it. So verse 25. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. This is a memorial... A time of remembering and celebrating and rejoicing in Jesus and what he's done for sinners like us. Now, we are a Reformed church. And so we believe that the meal is more than a memorial. There's more going on here. But it's certainly not less. And if we're going to emphasize anything, let's emphasize what Christ is emphasizing here in this passage. That when we come to this supper... We are remembering afresh how much God is committed to you and to your good and Christ being nailed to a cross for the forgiveness of your sins and your oneness with Him and with other brothers and sisters. We remember His body broken for us. How He we, how we bore our sins in His body on the tree. We, re- we remember His blood shed for us Poured out for our forgiveness, that, that, that washes away our sins. The blood that Paul says justifies us in the sight of God. Simply stated, we're remembering the gospel of our salvation when we partake of this supper. So, do, do you see now why Paul's rebuke is entirely warranted? They were supposed to be remembering the gospel and the supper, but instead they were making a, a mockery of it. Shall I commend you for this, Paul says? Certainly not. Secondly, though, the, the supper is a, a time of proclaiming the gospel. Both in what we say and in what we do. And you can see that there in the passage. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Both in what we say and in what we do. And audibly as we hear the word of God read. As we hear the good news of the gospel proclaimed. But then even visually. As we look at the bread being broken. Tangibly as we, as we hold in our hands. I, I love how the, the Heidelberg Catechism explains the Lord's Supper as As real. Is the bread that you hold in your hand and that you taste in your mouth. That's the reality of Christ who died for you and for your sins. So we're proclaiming it even in partaking of it. And it's not just for, for the preacher, it's not just me or some elder who comes up, it's it's everybody in the church. The whole church is doing this together. Certainly the pastor reads and preaches the scriptures, but believers partake. They sing the glory of God. They're singing the gospel. They're taking opportunities to, to confess one, with one another the, the truths of the gospel. They're speaking with one another, as the day goes on, of, of the glorious gospel of grace. And it's for both believers and for unbelievers. This proclamation that takes place in the Lord's Supper is for both believers and for unbelievers. The Supper is not for both believers and for unbelievers. for believers only. We'll see that in a moment. But the proclamation of the Gospel is for both. Paul here assumes, it's very interesting, he assumes that even in the Supper, the presence of non-Christians in the assembly. And what Paul is saying is this, this is a time for people who don't know Christ, who have have never put their faith in Him, to come and hear and to see the good news of the Gospel on offer to them in Christ. And so maybe you're here this morning. Maybe this is the first time you've ever come into a church. Maybe this is the first time you've seen us do something called the Lord's Supper. Maybe you have questions yourself. May may I just invite you, as you hear the Word proclaimed, as you see it tangibly being partaken of by the people around you, that you would be seeing something of the gospel on offer to you this morning. That it's not just believers that need the gospel, but unbelievers as well. And we're no better than anybody else. We're not more spiritually sensitive. We're not any less deserving of God's judgment. We're no better than anybody else. We, When we rightly understand ourselves, we are the chief among sinners. And I I mean it when I say, I am the worst sinner that I know. Because I don't know anybody else's sins as much as I know my own. And that's as a believer in Christ. So I want you to hear this morning, if you're an unbeliever and you're here, this gospel is for sinners. So I invite you to take this opportunity to look to Christ. But it's not just for unbelievers. Brothers and sisters in Christ... We need to hear the gospel as well, don't we? We need to hear it daily. And praise God that He's given us an institution in the church that that brings it right to our face. To see it afresh, as often as we eat and we drink of this meal. We need the gospel every day. This proclamation, brother and sister in Christ, is for you Hence, hence the significance of what the Corinthians are doing. Dishonoring the Lord's Supper is especially egregious because it hinders and even distorts the proclamation of the gospel. They weren't remembering the gospel. They weren't proclaiming it. But third, both of those entail a third reason for Paul's rebuke. Look at verse 27. Whenever therefore, or excuse me, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. To dishonor the Lord's Supper, Paul says, is to dishonor the Lord himself. When we fail to remember and to proclaim the gospel in the Lord's Supper, we're dishonoring not simply the supper. But the Savior. You think about the American flag. And if somebody laid an American flag down on the floor and trampled over it, yeah, they're dishonoring the flag. They're tearing it. They're getting it dirty. But what else are they saying? It's not just the flag that they're dishonoring, is it? Or or take another example. Suppose you give somebody a gift for Christmas. A gift that you worked hard to make for that person. Maybe you sewed uh, a dress. For someone, maybe you maybe you do wood carvings. So I, I had a, a co-elder at uh, Seventh Reformed who just, just unbelievable the, the kinds of detailed carvings he could do and how fragile they were. And how many hours and hours he would spend on that. And just imagine that you put that much time and effort into a gift and you give it to somebody at Christmas. Only to see them, t- to take the gift and just just toss it aside in total disregard. Maybe the, maybe the garment tears as it, as it lays down or it gets dirty. Or the those, those details that you spent so much time on just wrecked. Total disregard for the gift. Is that dishonoring to the gift? You bet. But imagine you're the one who gave the gift. It's not just dishonoring to the gift, is it? It's dishonoring to the giver. And so it's entirely appropriate that Paul would address this sin and rebuke the Corinthians for what they were doing because they weren't simply... Dishonoring the supper, not just the gift that God had given, they were dishonoring the giver. They were dishonoring Christ and what they were doing. It's a remembrance of Him. We need to remember that whenever we come to the supper. But one more point, just to drive this home: it's not what the, not just what the supper symbolizes. But do you realize when we come together as a church and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're at table with Christ Himself. He's with us when we are gathered together to worship Him. Not, he's not present in the elements. He's not, you know, the, the bread doesn't become His physical body and so on. But He's present with us spiritually by faith, by the Spirit. He is here in this room with us at table. And the way in which we treat this supper, he's observing it. He's with us. Paul says, one chapter before in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a a participation, a fellowship, a communion, In the body of Christ. Now when you think of how the Corinthians were treating the Lord's Supper. Now can you understand now. Why Paul's rebuke. As strong as it is. Is entirely warranted. But here's what's so amazing in this passage. I'm just struck by this. When I read it I have to be struck by this. Because here comes more mercy. Mercy. Although Paul recognizes and rebukes the Corinthians for their sin and and how they've treated the Lord's Supper, how they were treating each other, listen, he still reminds them that that's precisely why the Lord's Supper is still for them. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is for sinners. If we got it right all the time, we wouldn't need Jesus. Even the church, who's getting it so wrong... On the Lord's Supper, Paul's saying, "It's still for you." He could have said, he could have just stopped here and said, "Just, just, just forget it, give up that you not even you can't even come close to being worthy of that." No, what he's saying is, "Yes, you're sinners, but you need to remember the gospel." It's for sinners in this room this morning too, friends. We may not have the exact same problems as the Corinthians did. But we, we still have our own problems, don't we? We still have our own sin. We still struggle with disunity. Right? Maybe it's not as outward as maybe what was going on in first century Corinth. But maybe it's under the surface. As, as a corporate body, I mean, you can think certainly of, I know stories of churches splitting over colors of carpet. Can you imagine that? We're not beyond that, are we? Sin is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And even relationally, we have disunity, we have conflict, we have people that we'd rather not be with, that we avoid, that grudges that go back years, things that we've not let go of. We bring that as a church, don't we? We still forget the gospel. Even in the supper, we get distracted, don't we? We get disinterested. We just do it as as routine. We observe without really thinking about what we're doing and meditating upon Jesus. We still need the supper to remind us that forgiveness comes to us by faith in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why we're taking it today. So consider with me then, as we close, how Paul's correctives, Paul's correctives to the rebuke can help us even today as we celebrate the supper together, to do it in a way that glorifies God and that benefits us as well. It's not enough to simply say, try harder. We need instruction. And Paul gives us correctives on how to pursue this meal together in a way that makes much of Christ and that will be a blessing and a delight to us as we do it. So as we close, what are Paul's correctives? What's Paul's instruction for us? What do we need to know and what do we need to change as we approach this supper? Well, he gives commands and he gives warnings, doesn't he? Before coming to the Lord's Supper, examine yourself and heed the warnings. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The word then in the, the ESV, that's a, it should be a therefore. And maybe your text says therefore, Then's just fine. It's another way of saying Therefore. Based upon what he just said, based upon the gospel significance of the supper, we should therefore examine ourselves before we come to this supper. And we're not talking about some morbid self-introspection, but an honest self-examination in light of the gospel. As you take a look at your sin, you should be, as a Christian, seeing your sin areas you need to confess, but you should be seeing your sin nailed to the cross. For every one look, you take it yourself. We just heard this yesterday at Presbytery. For every one look, you take it yourself. Robert Murray McShane once said, you take ten looks at the cross. The more you see of your sin, the bigger the cross should be for you. And that is what will drive you from your sin to Christ. So examine yourself. Verse 29, he says, discern the body. Now, it's not clear what Paul means by the body here. Is he talking about the elements? I don't don't think he's talking about the elements. Is he talking about Christ's physical body in heaven? Maybe. I think more probably, he's talking about discerning the body of believers with whom you're partaking of the supper with. Discerning what their needs are. Being discerning to know that the poor haven't joined you yet, and we need to wait for them. They haven't had a portion yet. Discerning that within the body, I'm causing strife and divisions. I think that's the whole point of the passage here. Now, does does that assume that we have a level of spiritual maturity? Yes, it does. Does it assume that we understand who Christ is and what was done for us, by Christ on the cross, that we've made profession of that faith in the church, it assumes all of those things, but it's working itself out horizontally, in the way the meal is supposed to be partaken together. And, and notice the warnings too, verses thirty through thirty-two. This is, this is a very interesting, very interesting warning. Look at look at the text. That is why many. Now, you notice he says many there. there actually, many people in the Corinthian church who were weak and ill, and some have even died because of the ways in which they've been treating the Lord's Supper. Isn't that amazing? Well, it it shouldn't be in light of what we just looked at about the significance of the Supper. In other words, the, the Corinthians weren't properly fencing the table, they weren't practicing discipline themselves, so God gets involved directly. And he says that this is judgment on those who partake in an unworthy manner. They continue to do this. Now, I want, I want to very clearly point something out to you in this passage. Look again at the text. Verse 32. When you are judged by the Lord, you're disciplined. Even the death of some of the members, Paul says, was God's discipline. And if you remember the scriptures about discipline from the Lord, a father disciplines the child whom he loves. And we see that in the... T- look at what it says. So that, verse 32, we would not be condemned along with the world. In the midst of God's discipline, He's protecting His people from condemnation. He would rather take you out of this world than let you go on turning from Him. He's going he's to come and make it right in one way or another. But Paul says, still... We should seek to avoid that judgment by seeking to be faithful to Him in how we treat the supper. So when coming together, we should also pursue unity. That's very clear from the passage. When we take the supper, we should eat and drink at the same time. That's that's why we practice it that way. We express our oneness in Christ. And we should also be taking this opportunity to reconcile with one another. If you've got a conflict that has not been resolved, the Bible says it's up to you to go to that person. And what a, what a wonderful opportunity we have to do that today. And, and, and to befriend and encourage brothers and sisters maybe you don't have much of a relationship with, but you should. To take time to get to know them, to encourage them, to fellowship with them. And before eating and drinking the Lord's Supper, finally, we should take time to really consider and meditate on, and rejoice in the gospel significance of this supper. Take time to remember the gospel this morning. Take time to remember your need for the gospel. There's a a story of a Scottish minister who one communion Sunday noticed a a young lady in his congregation just, just gripped by her sin. She's just sobbing. Because she realizes how unworthy she is to take the supper. And so she's hesitating to take the supper. He notices this woman. And he just leans forward and and he says to her, Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. Brothers and sisters, this supper is for sinners. The gospel is for sinners. And so as we come together together, and we realize the significance of what we're doing when we take this supper. Let's not take it in dread. The word remember is so important in this passage. In fact, the only other time I can remember the, uh, the word being used in scriptures in Hebrews, which reminds us of the Old Testament sacrifices. How again and again and again the people would come to the altar as a remembrance of their sins. It was never finally dealt with. But here in this passage, when we come to Jesus, we don't remember sin. We remember him who died for our sins. And we remember he who remembers our sins no more because of the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the supper Thank you for the gospel, and may we now take it in a way that makes much of Jesus Christ and thrills our souls in the one who paid every last bit of the payment due for sin, for sinners like us, and we pray in his name alone. Amen.